0: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about valuation and valuation specifically about tech companies. Tech companies now make up 40% of the stock market, which surpasses the levels they were at at the dot-com bubble era. So tech makes up a huge portion of the stock market. And if there's one thing people disagree on, it's how to value them how do you value a tech company? In this episode, I'm going to go over why I think it's nearly impossible to accurately value a tech company. And instead, I'm going to give investors something that I think is a better metric to look at, a better way of looking at investing in tech companies. We also have some big news to get to. Disney has announced that they're reorganizing their business. They're putting streaming as a bigger focus. And Bob Chapek did this interview that I have to react to because I thought it was a very frustrating interview to listen to. I was listening to him say that we're going to let the consumers decide what direction to go. I'm going to explain why the consumer has already decided what direction Disney should go. So I'll be reacting to this interview and sharing my thoughts on the restructuring of Disney. And of course, if you want to support the channel, we do have a Patreon. It gives you access to a community discord, a dividend tracking website, as well as some exclusive content. There's going to be a link in the description of this video. So you can check that out as well if you're interested. Okay, let's jump right in. First of all, let's talk about the valuation of tech stocks and why I think it's nearly impossible to accurately value them. Here's an interview with Paul He's a portfolio manager. And this interview is from October 30th of 2019. And some of the fangs, at least, I think some of them are at least somewhat overvalued at this point. And are- so what you do is you wait till you absorb the quarterly earnings, see what the fundamentals are, recheck the valuation. But I think they're now more holds. And maybe even if they continue to spike up, maybe better sells than they are buys. He says these companies, the FANG stocks, are overvalued and that they might even be better sells right now than buys. Now keep in mind, this interview was October 30th of 2019. If we were to listen to Paul's advice and sell out of our Apple stock, we would have missed so far 95% returns, not counting dividends being reinvested. That's just with Apple. Netflix has gone up 82% since that interview. And Amazon has gone up 85% as well. In fact, you could pick any of those Fing stocks, and all of them have nearly doubled since the time he said they were overvalued. Now, of course, with 2020 hindsight, we know that Paul Hare was wrong. That these stocks weren't overvalued, especially looking at today, they've gone up all nearly double since the time of this video. But there was a pandemic, some things changed, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, even today, there's the same ongoing debate. Investors disagreeing with the valuation, especially for tech companies. Cole Smead, a portfolio manager for a hedge fund, says that nightmare U.S. stock valuations are being driven by young, dumb investors. He's pointing to Robinhood investors and one finance investors saying that us young dumb people are driving the stock market into nightmare US stock valuations. Now I thought with Cole Smead calling us all young and dumb, maybe he's just really smart. Maybe we're all young and dumb in comparison to him. So I went ahead and checked out his hedge fund to see if there's anything we can learn from him. And I especially checked out the performance of it since its inception in 2008. And unsurprisingly, their hedge fund and every single fund they own has underperformed the S&P 500 since it was created nearly 13 years ago. So unfortunately, I don't know how much we can learn from Cole Smead other than the fact that he thinks the stock market is a nightmare right now. Now, despite the performance of Cole Smead's hedge fund, he's not the only one that thinks that tech stocks are currently overvalued. Here's a senior analyst for CNBC saying the same thing. I mean, on the latter, I think you know big tech has been overvalued and and there were folks out this morning saying that by by most measures we're seeing valuation stretches that we've not seen since nineteen ninety nine and two thousand. and He's saying the same thing, that big tech is overvalued, and the valuation is stretched the most that we've seen in the past two decades. And he's a senior analyst, probably a pretty smart guy. He does this for a living. But the debate continues. There's people like Kevin O'Leary that he thinks that tech stocks are not overvalued. In fact, he's putting more of his focus of his investments on technology companies.
1: I own 70 names globally that are involved in internet commerce, and what matters to me Judges sales growth, and they have it. And you know, I think there's going to be a major rebound because several reasons. You know, we have started on a digital journey, not just in America, everywhere. Europe, you find it in Asia, South America. People are finding the convenience of shopping and buying and being serviced online incredibly powerful, having been forced into it. It's a theme we've been talking about for six months, but the idea that it's going to go away after the pandemic is resolved, whenever that is, is ridiculous. This convenience is born forever, and the enablers of it are all the names that empower this. They're going to continue to outperform, they're going to continue to outgrow, and not to not have positions in them, remembering that even an Apple or an Amazon over its journey to its behemoth size had multiple 20-30% corrections. you just got take a deep breath, have a nice glass of Chardonnay and relax.
0: So Kevin O'Leary is instructing people to have tech as a major focus of their portfolio. We have senior analysts from CNBC saying that tech is overvalued right now. We have people a year ago saying the same thing, that tech was overvalued when it was half the valuation it currently is. So what do we listen to? What do we make of this? I think the reason that tech stocks are so difficult to value is because of one word, scalability. I think that is the primary reason that these companies are so inherently difficult to give accurate valuations of. Let's take an example. We'll look at one company that I'll call a traditional company, Walmart, and then we'll look at one that I'll call a tech company, Slack. You could replace either of these with similar companies. It's not really specific to these ones, but we have Walmart, which is our traditional company. We have Slack, which is our tech company. The difference is scalability, of these two companies. Slack as a company because its software has a high amount of scalability and that's something that does not exist with Walmart. For instance, one of the issues with Walmart is that it has high variable costs. Anytime Walmart wants to expand its business, it wants to grow, what does it need to do? It needs to increase the amount of stores that it has. In order to increase the amount of stores it has, it has to go to a city. They have to look at an area to buy a property. They buy a big lot. They make an agreement with the city. They start construction. They build a big Walmart building. And then they have to hire employees. All of this takes time and money and capital investments to do. Those additional employees add expense to the company. This creates a high variable cost, meaning the bigger the company gets, more expensive it gets to run. Not only do they have to pay new property taxes, they have to pay for logistics and figure all of that out to ship all their merchandise to that new location. They have to pay for managers and even more complex management. Now they have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of employees to keep track of. That's no small task. Walmart has a high amount of variable costs. This makes them inherently less scalable. Slack Is the complete opposite. In order to get a new customer, what do they have to do? They might run some ad on Facebook or Google, and then people go to their website, they go through a little sales funnel, and they try it out. And then Slack has new customers. They didn't have to open up any new places, they didn't have to hire any new employees. They can expand their operations with virtually no variable costs. They don't have to hire new employees, they don't have to figure out new logistics. The variable costs for Slack are really low. Now, with Walmart having high variable costs, having to pay for all those employees, all that overhead, all those new buildings, that creates a company that has pretty low margins. Walmart is a low margin business, which means even though they revenue a lot, they don't get to keep most of that money. Most of it goes right back into all of their expenses. Slack, on the other hand, like most software companies, has very low overhead. Their low variable costs make it so that they are a high margin business. They can expand the amount of customers that they have and they get to keep a good chunk of that money because they don't have as much overhead. This is another big difference in the scalability between a company like Walmart and a software company like Slack. Now, because of these factors, with Walmart being a high variable cost business, a low margin business, that means that it's going to have linear scaling and linear growth. You'll be able to chart out Walmart's growth and it will be slow and steady. It'll be predictable. That's something that investors like to look at because it makes these companies easy to value. You look at their past growth and then you can extrapolate into their future growth. And you can do that with a good level of predictability. The difficulty with trying to value software tech companies is that their growth isn't linear all the time. It can be exponential. Software companies have a strong chance of having non-linear growth. We've seen this with social media companies. They scale dramatically. It doesn't grow on a linear scale. And if you compare the two together, in the short term, the growth can be linear along with traditional companies. But then if a software company has something happen, if the product becomes trendy or in style, the growth can explode far past what a traditional company would be able to accomplish. On the green line, we can see non-linear growth. After a certain point, it takes off at an accelerated speed. On the red line, you see a company that has a more predictable growth pattern. So I think if you're trying to value tech companies, you should look at the scalability of the company. The ones that I have in my portfolio have already scaled to massive sizes. These are already very mature companies. For younger ones, you should look at the likelihood that that company is going to be able to scale to its addressable market. Disney's a company that I think is mixed right now. Part of it is traditional company and part of it is highly scalable. Now, it seems like Disney is actually acknowledging the scalability of their streaming service and the opportunity that this is. It's a very unique opportunity for them and they've announced a major reorganization with their business. This is a a piece of news that was sent to me like a dozen times from different people saying, hey, they must be listening to you. They must be watching the show because I've been saying for months that the most important part of Disney's business is their streaming service by far. It has the most potential of any aspect of their business. Now Disney says that its primary focus for entertainment is streaming. Streaming is their primary focus above their parks, above movie theaters, above everything else. They have streaming as number one. Now, I was watching this interview with Bob Chapek, the Disney CEO, and he said some good things. He says that the company's doing really well, that they can't give out the number of the specific amount of subscribers they have right now, but that they will be releasing that later on. And he says that they're exceeding all of their expectations. That's all good stuff, but one part of this interview is really frustrating to listen to. He's asked how committed they are to the theatrical release model. How committed are they to putting their movie into theaters first and then releasing them on streaming months down the road? And his answer is that they're going to let the consumer decide.
1: So we want to make sure that, again, that we put the consumer first and the consumer is going to be making the decision in terms of how they consume our media, as opposed to some arbitrary decision that we may make from a distribution standpoint. So we want to look at ourselves as consumer enablers.
0: See, this is the part that confuses me. Bob here says that they're going to let the consumer decide where the content goes. That's going to be a decision made by the consumer, not by some arbitrary decision by the management. But how has the consumer not already decided this the consumer has already made their decision look at the evidence they want the content instantly on disney plus they want to be able to view it from the convenience of their own home instantly when it's released that's the way the consumer has decided disney plus has surpassed 60 million subscribers within the first nine months of its launch and if you need more evidence than that Just take a look at Netflix. They have nearly 200 million subscribers and their revenue growth is one of the most beautiful revenue growths I've ever seen of a company. This is an incredible revenue growth line and you can say the same thing about their operating income, their operating margin, their free cash flow. Every single metric for Netflix looks better and better as time goes on. So I don't buy this whole reasoning of letting the consumer decide. I think they've already largely made their decision. Now I'm interested to see the next moves that Disney makes because they left this a little bit open-ended here. They don't really answer a lot of questions of exactly what they're doing. We know that they realize that streaming's a big focus. They realize it's a big opportunity. But Bob Chapek was very silent with what their plans are. And he even gave kind of a teaser at the end of this interview Fewer films in theaters. Does it mean you're going to want to do something more like the day and date releases um, or a, that uh, Universal experimented with or the 17 day window that Universal agreed on um, with AMC? What does the future of theatrical look like then?
1: Well, I think you're going to hear a lot more on December 10th when we have our next investor conference. Uh, We plan to share a lot more details in terms of how this strategy and how this reorganization then translates into business actions. And uh, so I look forward to sharing a lot more on December 10th.
0: That's his teaser. We have to wait until December 10th, and then they're going to release a lot more details on their specific business actions and how it fits into this overall strategy. So they're saying that Disney Plus is going to be a big focus of the company. It's the primary focus, but they're not really saying what they're doing about that. They haven't said that they're raising the budget. They haven't said that they're redirecting content onto it. They've left all of that open-ended, saying that right now just the consumer is going to decide. My prediction is... And this is just a guess, so I could be wrong. But my prediction is, is that they're going to release a much more aggressive plan to double down on Disney Plus December 10th. When they release the business actions, I think they're going to double down on the service, they're going to raise the budget for it, and they're going to redirect more content onto Disney Plus. Now before jumping into questions, I want to do a quick portfolio update. This is the passive income portfolio. The value is $126,800. dollars And I'm currently in the green by $14,000. So I continually add to this portfolio. Like just last week, I put $2,000 more into it. So I'm constantly buying stocks with this portfolio, trying to build it up and trying to earn as much dividends and capital appreciation as possible. Now, if I look through overall my investments and I do an assessment of what's performed well and what hasn't, most things I'm making money in, there's a couple sectors that have really held back the returns of this portfolio. By far, the best performing sector has been tech. That's what we've seen with 2020. It has been the year of tech. I'm also making money in consumer. We're up $3,600. I've been buying a lot of consumer companies as well. I think there's going to be a few winners in there. In real estate, this is the biggest place I'm losing money. Real estate, I'm down 15% overall. If I look at my holdings, two of them, I'm still in the red. One of them is Welltower, a senior assisted living REIT. And another one is Simon Property, which is malls. I bought malls before coronavirus. At the time, I thought that they were a decent value. They were discounted. And then coronavirus happened. And that made the whole story change with malls. So unfortunately, Simon Property dropped about 50% in value. And it has since to come back up. And right now it's dropped so much in value. Investors have priced in the worst case scenario with malls. So that's already been priced in. I'm going to hold on to Simon property and at least keep collecting dividends from it and see if over time we can make back some of these losses. So overall with my portfolio, by far the biggest loser has been real estate. I'm down $1,700 on that. That is a good chunk of money lost with it. Finance hasn't been performing too well either. I haven't been losing money, but it's been pretty flat. So The big banks have not performed. They're being restricted heavily by government right now. So I think this will take time for those to play out. We also have healthcare, and that I'm doing okay, making money with it. Utilities, and that I'm still doing okay, making some money with it. In telecom, I have two companies, AT&T and Verizon. Verizon has been doing okay. AT&T has been a continual disappointment. Right now, I'm just holding it and kind of treating it like a bond. I'm just collecting the dividend. AT&T pays a substantial dividend. So I'll keep collecting that income and putting it into other stocks. So that's what it looks like so far. The two sectors that I'm in the red are telecom and real estate. And I think that makes sense. With 2020, we've seen real estate really get affected. There was an article just today from the New York Times saying COVID-19 pounds New York real estate worse than 9-11 and the financial crash. So in some cities like New York, this is the worst ever for real estate. In the recent history of our country, this is the worst time period ever. So I think it might take a long time for real estate to recover. Right now, I continue to just hold it and collect the dividends. And the dividends are coming in and they're growing. One of the dividends I just got paid was from store capital. It was $159. That's a quarterly dividend. So I'll get this four times a year. But $159.32, I like receiving that in my cash balance. With that money I was paid, I was able to reinvest it back into Visa and Verizon Communications. So that's it so far. The income keeps growing. In the past 30 days, I've earned $484 in dividends. And that's a record for me. So the income stream continues to grow over time. That is the main metric I'm looking at with this portfolio is that defensive income stream. So I like seeing that I'm earning almost $500 in a one month period. Okay, now before moving on to questions, I have to do just a random news update here. If you're an early follower of the channel, you'll know that I covered the story of Elizabeth Holmes and her fraudulent company, Theranos. Everything fell apart once a lot of the investors realized that the promises she made about her technology were a little bit exaggerated to say it mildly. They were misrepresented. The company could not do the things that she claimed that her technology could do. Now, a lot of people have said that what Elizabeth Holmes did was similar to what Nikola has done. It's both companies that had ambitious goals. They misrepresented their technologies and they misrepresented it to investors who invested a lot of money and have since lost a lot of money. Now, Theranos founder, Elizabeth Holmes, is facing criminal charges. She did a motion to dismiss those criminal charges and that has been rejected by a federal judge. So the trial is set for March. And like I mentioned, there's a lot of parallels between this and the case of Nikola. Both of them have misrepresented their technology and deceived a lot of investors into investing in their companies. And both of them had big partners. With Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, it was Walgreens. They got an inked deal with Walgreens to put their machines inside of Walgreens stores, and that gained reputation for Theranos until everything came falling apart. But Walgreens was one of the reasons that a lot of investors invested in Theranos, because of the reputation of Walgreens. We can see the same thing happening with Nikola. They're in the process of trying to put this deal together with GM, something that would give Nikola a lot of validity, give them a lot of reputation boost. But the deal looks like it's unlikely now. Nikola is saying things like, we'll be fine even if this deal doesn't happen. So they're kind of preemptively hedging their bet against this deal falling apart. Just on this news alone, Nikola fell another 16%. So I think that Nikola is heavily reliant on this deal with GM. I think it's the final straw. If they lose this deal with GM, I think this company's stock price will completely collapse. So investors are preemptively selling out just in anticipation of that happening. A lot of them are getting a little bit uneasy about it. But with following the parallel between these two stories, I think it will be interesting to see what happens with Elizabeth Holmes. Because it will set a precedent of how liable a young, ambitious entrepreneur is with the promises that they make to investors. It'll make it come real. Will Elizabeth Holmes get a slap on the wrist for this? Or will she actually get sentenced to jail? We're going to be able to see this unfold next year. Okay, let's move on to emails and questions. The email address is joseph at show.com. That's joseph at show.com. You can email in anything that's on your mind and we can talk about it on the show. The first one's from Paul. He says, Joseph, what do you think about Google possibly being forced to sell its Chrome business? This is an interesting question. I think that Google would be okay if it had to sell its Chrome business. It would definitely be hurt because that's kind of the window into its company. Google tries very hard to protect their homepage, Google.com. That is the core of their business. That's where everything flows into. That's where they make all of their money is Google.com. To show how important that is to Google to remain dominant in search, they pay Apple $10 billion per year just to have Google.com be the default search engine on their devices. So when you open up a new iPhone and you log into Safari, Google.com will be the default website. And that's because Google paid Apple $10 billion plus. It goes up every single year. So Google's paying a fortune to have that be the default because they know they're vulnerable. If Apple were to make their own search engine and make it default on all their devices, they would probably instantly take a huge portion of the market away from Google. And Apple's already, I think, taking a portion of the market from Google in other other areas. I think Apple Maps is now competing really well with Google Maps. I think that Safari is becoming better and better, and it will compete with Chrome over the upcoming years. And I think that Apple is probably working on their own search engine. I think it's going to be focused on safety and security and privacy. That's the way that I could see Apple focusing it. So I could see Google getting a lot of competition in the upcoming years, Without Congress doing anything, without them intervening, I see Google getting a lot of pressure from different services from companies like Apple and others that are going to be competing with them. Eric says, hey Joseph, love the videos. As a 22-year-old with a decent sum of money in the market, I was wondering if having an allocation of 100% equity instead of 60-40 is better for myself at my young age. My holdings are pretty conservative investments, such as financials, lots of utilities, telecom, alternative assets, renewables, and infrastructure a bit of real estate, and some S&P 500 and QQQ. You have a lot of different stuff there. That's a pretty diversified portfolio. You say, most of these companies are great for DGI, and I keep adding to them every so often I have enough capital accumulated. However, I'm always hearing that having bonds is a great way to make your portfolio more defensive, but I'm questioning if I would benefit more from not having any due to my young age. Eric, I think at 22 years old, having 60-40 is way too conservative. That's my opinion on it. I would put way more of your money into equities, maybe 100%. At the max, I would own 80-20. I think that would be the maximum. But right now, like I've said many times, I think bonds are not a good deal. I think they're just a bad deal. They pay a low interest rate. They're income assets, and they don't pay you a lot of income. And inflation is likely going to exceed the amount that you earn in income. So your actual real income with bonds is negative. They're not the best assets to be owning right now. Um, There's other places you can put your money into productive companies that can hedge better against inflation. And with your timeline, being only 22 years old, you have a long time to wait out any market conditions. So if I were you, I would go 100% equities, maybe at the most 80-20, that would be what I would do. Just don't do anything stupid and sell during a downturn. As long as you stay invested and go through downturns just like we did through May, if another downturn happens, just continue to look at it as an opportunity and buy more stock. If you're able to do that, I think you'll have better returns with 100% equities. Okay, well, that's it for today's episode. You guys have a good one. I'll talk to you next time.